Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to our special Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. birthday broadcast. Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 17th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show is committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. And good evening, I'm William Hosea. Throughout the day, the city of Bloomington has been hosting or sponsoring events that commemorate the life and impact of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Immediately after our broadcast at 7 p.m., today's festivities will culminate at the Buskirk Chumley Theater with the annual citywide MLK celebration. The event will also be live streaming on WFHB and CATS. Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton will also present the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Legacy Award. The keynote speaker for this evening's celebration is Dr. Eddie Cole, an Associate Professor of Higher Education and Organizational Change at UCLA. He has published and presented on a variety of topics, primarily college presidents during the Black Freedom Movement and their responses to racial incidents. He will speak on the challenge of action and the challenges of action. In 2021, Education Week named Dr. Cole as one of the most influential US-based education scholars. His work and speaking events on college presidents and race has appeared in multiple popular press outlets, including the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, San Francisco Chronicle, the Boston Globe, and the Chronicle of Higher Education, among others. He joins us this evening along with Dr. Charlie Nelms, a native of the Arkansas Delta who has devoted his life to equalizing opportunities for disenfranchised peoples. He is currently a senior scholar at the American Association of State Colleges and Universities and a senior consultant for the Association of Governing Boards, specializing in HBCU governance and leadership, as well as retired chancellor from North Carolina Central University and IU Vice President for Institutional Development and Student Affairs Emeritus. Dr. Cole and Dr. Nelms, or as we have received permission, Eddie and Charlie, welcome to Bring It On. <laughs> Thank, Thank you for having me. Thank you. you know, I'm, I'm, happy, I'm happy to be here with another Eddie. My father's name is Eddie. Yeah. Oh, get out of here. Okay. Name. Yeah. Well, it's been a, a full two days of um, commemoration for the city of Bloomington, and I will culminate, culminate tonight with uh, with Eddie, with your presentation, which we're all looking forward to. Um, I heard that this morning there was an excellent uh, workshop series, and if either one of you want to comment on some of the things you've heard, or even yesterday there were some uh, presentations. So if we can get a recap over the last two days, I'd appreciate it. Well, uh, last night I had the good fortune of hearing Ben Crump. You know how you hear people on radio and television and that kind of thing. And then you have a chance to listen to them sort of expound on some of the things that uh, they only have a, a few seconds to do on national television. Uh, but I thought it was a wonderful conversation facilitated by the chairperson of uh, Department of African-American Studies at Earlham College. And it was an event sponsored by Earlham and IU East. 
where I once had the opportunity to serve as chancellor. But it was a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Uh, and then this morning, of course, had a chance to hear from uh, uh, my good friend, uh, Reverend Dr. William Barber II. Uh, I'll just say the man told the truth, you know? And if anyone left that gathering without understanding the connective tissue between history and now, they need to go back and watch that multiple times. But I thought Reverend Barber did a wonderful job in helping people to understand the difference between a march and a movement, a protest and a movement. And the fact that this was not just started by Trump. This is a, this is a historic kind of piece relative to the disenfranchisement of, uh, of, of uh, low wealth populations and especially black people. And then of course we had a chance to get a preview of what Eddie would be talking about this uh, this evening uh, at Buskert. I've already laid my suit out, everything. I'm gonna be there. And so it was just a wonderful, wonderful morning. We had some 500 people participating right. in the social justice conference uh, this morning. Excellent, excellent. And uh, it's interesting, here we are, we still have a <laughs> Voting Rights Act that is uh, nebulous to say the least and something that can replace it and, and be more impactful for all is being held up and held hostage. Um, a lot of people are frustrated right now. And before we dive into other forms of racism or just impediments, a thought or two on, on what we see going on nationally right now, either one of you gentlemen. Yeah, uh, let me just say again, thank you for having me. And what a great recap of the last couple of days by my friend Charlie here. Uh, you know, what we see going on right now uh, is exactly what Reverend Dr. Barber said this morning for the Indiana University uh, Memorial Celebration in that it is a continuation of challenges from decades past. And we've got to be in tune with these challenges, not just looking at an issue today and reacting in shock and awe as if where did this come from, but we've got to understand that just as there is a movement that Dr. King was a part of, there's also a counter movement that has always ran parallel with the likes of Dr. King and other activists who have fought for equal rights. And so when we think about the issues going on right now, the resistance to the Voters Voting Rights Act, or even the resistance to other forms of equality that were really leveled the playing field in so many ways in American societal life, that resistance is as old as the nation itself in the truest sense. And so we've got to be able to step back when we look at the headlines on television or in the newspaper or on social media, wherever we may get our news, we got to step back and say, what's the long legacy of this resistance to equal rights in the same way that we stop and pause on today to make sense of the legacy of Dr. King. We must also remember that the things that he was fighting for remain on the agenda worth fighting for right now today. Charlie, you mentioned uh, two people that spoke over the last 24 hours or so, Benjamin Crump, Reverend, Reverend Dr. William Barber, but. I also heard someone speak uh, that impressed me. And uh, first of all, I was shocked. Well, not shocked, but I was really surprised to learn that Dr. King only had has one grandchild, 13-year-old Yolanda Renee King. Mm -hmm. And I listened to this young girl speak. Um, I only got a chance to hear a, a few minutes of it on the news. Uh, but <clears throat> she seems to be, at 13 years old, she really seems to be picking up the mantle. Because when she speaks, you can tell she's not just being coached to speak. 
she sounds as if she knows what she's talking about. Like she's done the research and, and some parts of what she says, she sounds like she was there, you know, but uh, there was a couple of things that she said where she was uh, describing her grandmother, Coretta, Coretta Scott King. She was saying that uh, we tend to overlook powerful women in civil rights history who are often overlooked like her grandmother. And she said that her grandmother was the one that actually got Dr. King into the movement. Um, have any one of you heard of this child and heard her speak before? Uh, Eddie, you, you're nodding your head. You have not? Oh, you were nodding it the wrong way. That's what it was. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I heard her speak uh, a year or so ago. Uh -huh. And this child is amazingly wise for a kid this young, okay? And so the way I sort of situate that, William, is the fact that her, her, her knowledge, her wisdom, her understanding is generational and it's ge genealogical. It's generational and it is genealogical, okay? And it's something that's passed on, I think I would be going a little far if I say through her DNA. So I, I think that's a little bit uh, off the charts to say that, but clearly, uh, she learned a lot from her grandmother and from her aunts, uh, two aunts and her uh, one uncle and her father and her mother, you know, and so she um, she's well steeped, okay, for a young child in uh, uh, the movement and what's at stake and so on and so forth. And I hope that her message resonates as profoundly with her generation. Uh, and other generations as it does with me and people of my generation, which is, you know, really on up there now, you know, but, uh, but I, I, I have heard her speak and I'm really impressed with her. And I think it's a reflection of her, of her, um, of her heritage, I guess. Okay. Uh, Clarence, uh, let the record show. I was trying to say everything that Charlie just said, but, <laughs> but, you know, I didn't quite get there. That's why, you know, I went straight to him. <laughs> Tell me anything, you know. I'm a well, I've had I've had many a moment such as that, so <laughs> and many people have too. Uh, gentlemen, I, I want to read a statement, and I want to get your observations, and in particular, if you can expound on what you're feeling, the challenging issues that are plaguing higher education are. Uh, here's here's the uh, statement: There is a tremendous opportunity to bridge higher education history with the issues that we are grappling with today. Everything I see unfolding right now, there is a history behind it. The more we understand the full history of race and racism on college campuses, the better equipped we will be to deal with it. What are these observable challenges? And Dr. Cole, I'll, or Eddie, I'll, I'll turn to you first. Yeah, you know, I don't. I'm not sure we got enough time um, to really get back to this. <laughs> Of the challenges uh, facing and plaguing higher education today. But you know, one thing that stands out that's very clear, and we see it unfolding in the national news right now, is the cost of higher education. And, and that starts with tuition and the uh, wealth disparities along racial groups. And if you look at the uh, recent reports around student debt, uh, they're disproportionately skewed toward Black students and Black graduates, trying to make sense of how to even pay for higher education. And if they do, uh, take out loans, how do they repay said loans? So that's one particular issue that's plaguing higher education and it's a racialized issue. Another issue um, that comes to mind immediately is the issue around free speech. 
Uh, we oftentimes think of free speech in a the very matter of fact way as a constitutional right, but we don't think about it, what it means when an institution actively looks to recruit um, and, and uh, you know, students from various backgrounds and promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yet at the same time, there's the uh, controversial speakers and conservative speakers that oftentimes promote hate speech on campus. And that's a, that's a very real challenge. That's also racialized as well. Uh, we can also talk about affirmative action, the very, very narrow um, view of affirmative action that we have today that tends to skew toward very selective colleges and universities and whether those highly selective colleges can consider race in their admissions, but history tells us that actually affirmative action was so much more. I'll talk about that later tonight, but uh, it was so much more, including a lot of historically black colleges and universities. That was the original plans around affirmative action in higher education. And so the list goes on and on and on from how we engage student activists on campus, knowing that Martin Luther King himself was arrested in Georgia for, for joining alongside student activists who were challenging whites only lunch counters. Yet at the same time, when we think about student activists today, they're not always as warmly received when they're pushing for change on college campuses and beyond. And so those are just some of the issues. Uh, I mean, we can go on and on. I don't want to, I don't, I don't even know where to stop because we can get into, uh, you know, college athletics um, and what that means from a variety of points, um, especially when we think about the disproportionate number of Black students who make up well, revenue-generating sports, but that's that's just some of the things that come to mind immediately. We'll yield uh, two more minutes for, for athletics. I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one thing, um, I had an op-ed in the Washington Post come out in the summer of 2020, so in the first few months um, after COVID came upon us, and there was a big debate among colleges, universities, large or small, private or public, over whether to move forward with uh, college athletics when there was so much unknown with regard to COVID-19 and what its impact would do as far as travel and teams you know, competing against each other. And uh, that's just one example that we saw so many student athletes across the country uh, say that they wanted to play, but they wanted safety precautions put in place. And understanding how the disproportionate number of student athletes, once again, tend to be black students, especially revenue generating sports, men's basketball, women's basketball, college football, really on all levels, uh, but especially division one, uh, both football, both subdivision and football championship subdivision. And what does it mean when you think about these student athletes and something as simple as them going home on a weekend? Um, and what in the, the so little that we knew about the virus, there was no vaccine in sight, but there's also the revenue aspect for the university, right? Uh, being able to compete the television contracts, the multi-million dollar contracts, in conferences that gross over a billion dollars um, in total at the end of uh, athletic seasons. And so again, that becomes a very racialized issue. I mean, in so many ways you think about who fan bases are and who bit donors are, especially large athletics that tend to be white people who are these bit donors who sit in the suites and travel with the team. Yet the talent on the field tends to be black students, right? And so when you talk about putting student athletes out on the field to play and at the very beginning of a pandemic, again, when we knew so little about it and these being black students, yet those people most being entertained by their performance in the middle of a pandemic, being white, white, you know, game attendees, donors and so forth, that once again becomes just another racialized issue. And uh, just over the last year, you see uh, movement, name, image and likeness um, happening for student athletes, happening in a way that 
arguably we might not have seen it happen if not for COVID-19, because all of a sudden it became a very blatant contradiction between what universities had often said they wanted amateur sports, yet it became very, very much professionalized when it came to question of whether you put these amateur athletes on the field during a global pandemic. And so again, I can elaborate on so many different aspects of this, but that just gives a little snapshot of some of the questions that hover in my mind when it comes to athletics. Dr. Nelms. Well, you know, Clarence, I would agree with everything uh, uh, Eddie said. Um, and I wanna lift up three additional ones. The first is what I call the facade of diversity, equity, and inclusion. The facade of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And there is more rhetoric around this notion of DEI than there really is action. And one of the pieces that I would, I would refer you to is a piece that I did in the uh, diverse issues in one of my columns uh, several months ago. And I said, DEI is more than an acronym, okay? And so many people have become fixated on the acronym and we focus on access for students, which we should focus on, but we don't focus as much as we should on student success and we don't focus as much about people who are leading institutions, whether it be as deans, vice presidents, vice chancellors, presidents, or chancellors. So all of that I call the facade of DEI. The second one that I would raise is a lack of philanthropic support, philanthropic support for low wealth institutions in general, but HBCUs in particular. And so when uh, uh, McKinsey Scott gave the money to a select group of HBCUs, people celebrated. You know, I'm, I'm pleased that they got the money too, but people, I mean, people just got so excited about it, right? And $50 million is a lot of money, so I don't want to play that down, okay? But at the Michigans and the, uh, um, the California, University of California schools, uh, Harvard, Yale, et cetera, et cetera, I mean, a $50 million gift, okay, is pretty average for those places, okay? So we have this disproportionate kind of investment and in getting a tax write-off of that ph ph philanthropists make to high wealth institutions. And we get this decline at a time happening with HBCUs, some little bit of an increase at a time when the increase in, in, in philanthropic support at a time when there's a decline disproportionately from state resources going into public institutions, especially, okay? Mm -hmm. And then the final one that I wanna just sort of raise, lift up, uh, uh, and that is the cumulative effects of historic underfunding for historically black colleges and universities. A lot of people wanna start with what happened last year, year before. But if you go out there and look at the 1890 Land Grant Act or the 1860, uh, uh, the first uh, Land Grant Act, where the state gave all of these dollars and it was not until 1890 that HBCUs got those dollars. Well, just think about the kind of growth that occurred in the kind of investment that those institutions were able to make during the first Morale Act, okay? And the kind of land transfer that occurred. And so those are all issues that really crowd for a greater understanding such that you can make the case as it did recently in the state of Maryland, okay, with the need to address a kind of reparations, if you will, without ever calling it that. Eddie, you want to follow up to that? 
No, I mean, spot on in so many ways. I mean, that just shows it's so timely for this conversation on today because we're talking about history and the way that history shapes our present. I mean, this is the the, the one-time gift, like you said, Charlie, uh, is so important. I mean, it captures national headlines, but at one time has nothing on the interests of five, six, seven, eight decades not funded, right? I mean, there, there's so much to say about um, what could have happened. And I'll talk about this tonight, not to give too much of a preview, but I'll mention tonight that once upon a time during Dr. King's life, when President John F. Kennedy actually looked toward colleges and universities to help address the racial ills in America. And part of that was to invest in historically black colleges and universities that had done for so long the heavy lifting toward equality in this nation. Yet, very shortly after 1965, those plans soon fell apart. And that's why history gives us a blueprint for what we could do today, right? There was this once upon a time, this moment where we were talking about system-wide change, not just, as you said, the uh, high wealth institutions, right? Not just a couple dozen institutions, but we were talking about the entire educational system to create more access points to a higher opportunity of education for more people. Yet we got away from that so quickly, even before the end of the 1960s. And so you're spot on, Charlie. I mean, that I think about that all the time when we look at the last year and a half of the donations given to historically black colleges. Those are great, but there's so much more. And history tells us why there's so much more. Charlie, you said something that uh, really caught my ear when you, you said DEI is a facade. Can you can you elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, what what would you do to change it? What would you add on to it? Well, well, I, there's a lot I would do, but there would be, and I talk in threes and fours because when I learned this whole notion of asking people for money, I realized that I needed to do it quickly and I need to be able to make a compelling case quickly. So here here are three things that I would do. Okay, number one, I would start with the leadership of institutions, and I would start with the governance of institutions. Presidents are only as responsible and responsive as they are held accountable by their boards. So who's on the board of governors, or the board of trustees, the board of regents, it matters, okay? And then because it, matter, it matters because they are the people who are making the appointment of presidents and chancellors and so on and so forth. So I would start by taking a very careful, hard look and demanding change on the board of governors, a board of governors, of governance, the governance board. Secondly, who's leading institutions? We know that whether you're a football coach or whether you're a college president or a college chancellor, if you're black and if you're female, you tend to hire more people who look like you. So I want you to take a look at the, the, the staff of the coach at Pittsburgh. Take a look at the staff of the coach at Michigan State. Take a look at the coaching staff at Jackson State. You can just go on down the line. So who's the president, who's the coach, who's the dean does matter. So I start with the leadership piece. The third thing that I would do is <clears throat> I would have some key performance measures and objectives for every college or university, okay? Not just in terms of who gets in, but who's successful in majoring in the informatics, in the STEM, in the political science or whatever those disciplines are. So we're counting people as though the entire institution is being impacted, but that's not the case. We know that business schools are still 
<laughs> disproportionately underrepresented when it comes to black people, for example, okay, or the STEM disciplines. And so I would, th those would be three of the things that I, the leadership, the governance, and uh, 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 who's getting into which programs as opposed to just people getting into college. I think it's important to get in, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but that's not enough to get in if you're not graduating. That's not enough to get in unless you're getting into those high demand fields, okay? Um, uh, but those, those, are, those are three things that, that I would do to really move away from a lot of this rhetorical drinking red tea and rocking from side to side, so yeah. The voice you just heard uh, is not only a dear friend to bring it on, but to so many uh, that he's had the opportunity to impact. Uh, you just heard Dr. Charlie Nelms, retired chancellor of North, North Carolina Central University and IU Vice President for Institutional Development and Student Affairs Emeritus. And then also you've heard from Dr. Eddie Cole, who's Associate Professor of Higher Education and Organizational Change at UCLA. He also is tonight's keynote speaker at this evening's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration. Gentlemen, uh, can you share from your history and your experiences and your research, uh, how pivotal is the role of a college president in their endeavors to shape racial policies and practices in higher education? And Dr. Nelt, you talked about governance a moment ago, but Dr. Cole, how pivotal is that college president and what could they do uh, more so to, to have more equitable racial policies in higher education. Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, and I'm really enjoying this conversation. Let me just say um, my book, The Campus Color Line, College Presidents and the Struggle for Black Freedom, um, I did archival research at nearly 30 colleges and universities across the United States. Uh, that includes historically black colleges, private and public, as well as predominantly white institutions, uh, not just in the U.S. South, but across, in the Northeast, across the Midwest, and out on the West Coast, where I am now, uh, just to ultimately think about higher education and the outsized role that it has played in shaping every aspect of American life, and in particular, looking at the leaders of those institutions. And so I like to uh, explain it this way, that after World War II, the college and university took on an increased role within societal life in the sense that the GI Bill sent almost threefold, if not quadruple enrollments on many college campuses. And in turn, elected officials oftentimes look toward the leaders of these institutions to help solve the complex problems of America. And just a couple of examples, just to show how college presidents have shaped uh, racial policies and practices. One notable thing is when we think about federal housing policy, and if we think about the great migration and black people leaving the Jim Crow South and going to cities in the nor Northeast the Midwest and on the West Coast, these cities oftentimes had strict racial restrictive covenants. And therefore, there were only certain neighborhoods in Philadelphia or Chicago or Boston, New York, uh, San Francisco, where Black people could live. And in one, you know, in some instances, those Black neighborhoods weren't too far from major universities. And oftentimes, that encroachment, overcrowding of Black people getting too close to college campuses actually led a lot of college presidents, especially white presidents, of urban universities, right? The Harvards, the, New, the Columbia, Yale, uh, MIT, University of Chicago, University of Pennsylvania, they actually came together and started to lobby to federal officials. I mean, you think about college presidents actually speaking before the US Senate Judiciary Committees and Senate Budgetary Committees, and they were able to lobby and leverage their ways to make a quick alteration to the Federal Housing Act that actually sent two federal dollars for every $1 that a university spent. 
And in doing so, they actually were able to buy property that was longtime Black neighborhoods and Black residents near these campuses and displace thousands of working class communities, notably Black communities in cities across the United States. This is largely part of the broader urban renewal program that we're very familiar with, but we don't often think about college presidents and chancellors being at the center of the rationale for why cities should do this. And they justified this as saying that they were saving American cities. Now, this is important because when you think about uh, one of the most basic civil rights policies that Martin Luther King marched for, it was for housing being fair in America, right? He actually goes to Chicago and in 1966 has a march for fair housing. And to think how colleges and universities as expensive as some of the property is near these campuses today, I can even pick on my own university, UCLA, as expensive as it is to live near these campuses and how colleges and universities are some of the largest real estate holders in America's most expensive neighborhoods, pricing out so many people from those areas. That is just one example of how college presidents and chancellors historically have shaped arguably one of the most pressing civil rights issues that's still with us today, the right to fair housing. And this is applicable in both uh, college towns with more rural communities, as well as big cities, right? And so you have to understand the con context around what's happening in America during the mid 20th century and understand how the, the American university takes on a new level of influence and how elected officials not knowing what to do, oftentimes look toward the college and university because if colleges and universities are supposed to have the smart people that can solve complex problems, oftentimes elected officials call the leaders of those institutions to come consult with them on how to solve these complex problems. So even me being in Bloomington right now, you know, 10 years removed from when I was here as a graduate student and seeing different high rises, I can only imagine how slowly the cost of living has increased compared to when I was here a decade ago and what that means for the growth of Indiana University, but also for the average resident in Bloomington. Well put, Dr. Cole. Uh, Dr. Nels. Yeah, you know, that's uh, that, uh, those are some wonderful observations, Eddie. You know, I can't think of you all. I, you know, having been a college president three times, I can't think of a anyone more pivotal, really, than a college president to the success of, 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 of a more diverse population of people, especially African-American people. Why do I say that? Because they're instrumental in establishing priorities. They make hiring decisions. Even if, if we don't have as much money, we make decisions about how those dollars are going to be spent, okay? The allocation of resources, okay? But I, on this whole notion of property, so when I left Indiana University in 1971, I went to uh, uh, work for the City University of New York, Lehman College in the Bronx. And the person who hired me had a rule that if you didn't have a doctorate, you had to be in a doctoral program. So I was admitted to the program at Teachers College of Columbia University. And so I took the train from the Bronx uh, to, uh, to Manhattan to attend classes at TC, as we called it. That was heavily black around there. Do you know who one of the, one of the largest landowners in New York? It is Columbia University. Do you know who one of the largest landowners in Indianapolis it is? It is Indiana University. Do you know that IUPUI and the medical school are situated in what was one of the most 
affluent black communities along Indiana Avenue and Michigan Avenue. Pardon me for preaching, but that's part of that history that people don't really understand. Okay? That's part of what we don't. So IUPUI, if you look at the location of the University of Chicago, if you look at the location of the University of Pennsylvania, Okay, so these things are not happenstance. If you go to Durham, North Carolina, and you look at Duke University, okay, in the expansion of Duke, so I'm not beating up on them, but I'm just simply saying that there's this inextricable link between leadership, yes. between governance, and the progress and the success of a community. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what we have to do as a people is demand that these institutions reinvest in those communities as opposed to pricing poor people out of the opportunity to afford a residence. You know, you, you two have uh, made the perfect case for reparations. Have you engaged on that issue at all? Has anyone approached you? Either one. Yes, yes, people have talked. See, I think reparation, I'm not looking for a cash payment right. to every black citizen, okay? And I just think that there are some investments that, that need be made, should be made, and we ought to be demanding that they be made. Mm -hmm. And it's the improvement in public education in Gary, Indiana, in, in Indianapolis, Indiana, and in a lot of these communities, Cleveland, Detroit, Flint, Michigan, and so on and so forth. So there are lots of different forms that reparations can take. And I tend to be on the side of saying we need to be focused on community investments as opposed to individual investments uh, per se. Individual investments. There's no way America could cut every, every Black person a check. I mean, most of us would never see it. They go bankrupt trying to do it. So yeah, community investments, uh, from, from my understanding, is, is the only way to, to implement reparations. Dr. Cole? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this is what, you know, history gives us insight in that these ideas uh, are not new. Uh, people have made this argument for decades. In the mid-1960s, mid people made the exact same argument that we've got to invest to create different systems, both economic opportunities, uh, educational opportunities, and so many other aspects of life. I mean, this was really what was on the table, right? It isn't just about the same powerful institutions or the same corporations over and over again, it's about how do you have a distribution because the wealthiest entities, or in this case, say the wealthiest colleges and universities are not gonna be any less wealthy, right? Think of, I'll, I'll, pick, I'll pick on Harvard, right? Or I'll pick on the University of California, right? If you were to take a billion with a B, right? If you were to sort of take that total billion endowment, right? From Harvard or UCLA, is it any difference between 34 billion and 33 billion? Right? Is there any difference at the University of California between 15 billion and 14 billion? But imagine if a billion went to the public historically black colleges in North Carolina. Yeah. I mean, it's a game changer, right? It's a game. Yeah. And that's that's why you see this true distribution uh, of investment in, in more institutions is what's at the heart of what Martin Luther King and many black college presidents of black institutions were making an argument for in the 1960s, because if we want to see true equality beyond the rhetoric, right, beyond saying DEI, if we want to see true equality, we've got to have the sustained investment year after year, not just one time. You know, one of the other challenges that college presidents have, and, and in particular, black college presidents, you have to keep your talented faculty at your institution. 
uh, you know, they're being lured away. And you may not have the resources to match and exceed what the offers are. Let's say if your school has an outstanding athletic program that's generating lots of money, then you have to get in the fight to get some of those resources. Um, so, so what keeps you awake at night as a college president? And I'm looking at Dr. Dell. <laughs> I'm looking who said it, who who has had some, probably had a few sleepless nights. Trying to, I mean, you're multi, you're juggling all these different balls. I mean, your faculty, uh, making sure that your the infrastructure is where it should be, making sure that entering students have the first experience and impression while they walk on this campus. Because when you walked on your campus, you were inspired. I read your book, mm -hmm. and I knew the people that inspired you. So trying to replicate that in today's society, what goes through your mind? Well, so many things, Clarence, but I, I'll just choose one that, that was just the thing that occupied my energy and my waking hours, whether it was at North Carolina Central, the University of Michigan, at Penn or IU East, all low wealth institutions with a different desi uh, designation. And it was being able to afford students the kinds of support systems they needed in order to be successful. And what I mean, laboratories, I'm talking about financial aid. We had students who couldn't buy their books into the third, fourth, or fifth week of classes. I mean, it's hard for people to imagine that. We had people who couldn't afford childcare, and many of our, many of our students had, had young children, and there was no childcare center on campus, okay? I mean, North Carolina Central University just got a new student union building, and we used the same building that was constructed in about 1964-65 until the dedication is going to take place next month. But you go across town to Carolina or you go down to you in one of the hyphenated schools, okay? And they had everything to their liking. So what I worried about was just the basic kinds of things. Will students have access to technology? And depending on where you were in the same building, you could have access on one floor and not on another floor. You could have electrical systems going out when it became overloaded and so on and so forth. So Clarence, they weren't really the big things, it's just the little things that so many people take for granted that right. we do not have at North Carolina Central University. The leaking roofs, I mean, I mean, just basic kinds of things, but those things kept me awake and I tried to work for them. And people, legislators had no problem understanding why Carolina needed them or NC State needed them. Uh, but they couldn't they couldn't get their minds around why we needed it at North Carolina Central University, for example, or they understood why Michigan needed, but they couldn't understand why the University of Michigan at Flint needed it. So this 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 massive hypocrisy. Doctor Cole, if I could, if I could. Throw in another another aspect to that. You know, we, we spoke earlier of how land grants came into play back when I guess during Reconstruction. You know, hitting the big reset. While amidst still the three fifth rule, the Constitution and all. I mean, just those things that really held everybody back. But but then I heard something very interesting. Now, I don't think a lot of people understand the genesis of the Electoral College. And just how that really impacts not only how we vote as a people, because when we vote as a people, we can impact change, but the Electoral College was one of those measures that kept us in check. And for higher education, you know, higher education is not immune 
to these strategies of constraint. And if you could talk again about these challenges and about how these challenges are racist, I really want the listening audience to understand that, you know, sometimes narrative is used that is over their head and, and, and you have to dissect what you just heard so that you can clearly understand. So can we talk a little bit about what those racist challenges are? I really want to get an understanding. Yeah, well, you know, I'll say historically speaking, um, and is eerily similar to what we see today, is that uh, I, I love Charlie's example. I don't love the situation, but I love the example of how uh, elected officials in North Carolina had no problem seeing why Chapel Hill or NC State uh, needed something, but couldn't bring wrap their mind around why Central would need something, right? Yeah. And we see the same uh, sort of challenge in the sense of how elected officials both historically um, made sense of what institutions needed what. Um, and this is, I mean, this is a very real issue, right? So you think about, if you were to even go back to the land-grant institutions, as, as you were mentioning and framing your question, uh, and even my own alma mater, which is my undergraduate alma mater, which is Tennessee State University, a land-grant institution in Nashville, uh, only recently in the last few months has it been noted that up to 550 million dollars have been withheld from that one institution in land grant funds in the state of Tennessee. This is news that has come out in the last 12, I mean in the last 12 months. So just recently, right? So all of a sudden, uh, you see the state of Tennessee in the state capital elected officials what are merely miles away from Tennessee State, right? Just down the street, those same elected officials couldn't dare look out the window of the state house and imagine Tennessee State needing the funds that they are obligated to give to that institution. And then when you think about another challenge, right, beyond elected officials, we, and I just spoke to the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools, which is the accreditation body for a lot of Southern states. Um, I just spoke to pres on President's Day for that, uh, Charlie. And when speaking to those academic leaders, I also raised the point of saying, when you think about accrediting institutions, right, and you in financial stability is one criteria in whether or not an institution should, is up to snuff for that association with regards to its accreditation, if you don't account for history. That's right. Long history of the underfunding to an institution. How can you look at a lot of our colleges today and say make a determination over whether they're standing when you haven't accounted for the decades? And I'm emphasizing decades of underfunding well up to today, as we just saw the news with Tennessee State. And so that alone are two challenges from elected officials and other organizations or crediting bodies that don't account for the racist legacy of how these policies and practices that we're still perpetuating today don't account for the racism of the past. And so we're quick to elevate a Martin Luther King quote on today from these same associations, right? But at the same time, we don't stop the rest of the year and say, how are we in our day-to-day -day actions actually being contradictory, right? Hypocrisy mm -hmm. to the same quotes that we're gonna tweet sure and post today, but at the same time, these racist policies are still at play, still shaping education. Absolutely. Therefore, uh, Clarence and, 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 and Jose and, and Eddie, that's why what we have to do is to have a whole movement uh, toward full education. People really need to be educated. And we get fixated on Dr. King's dream when we're not dealing with the nightmare that Black and poor and historically disenfranchised people live with every day. 
-hmm. every day. We fixate on the Voting Rights Act. Now, we should be concerned about the Voting Rights Act. Don't misunderstand me now, okay? But there are these, there are these disincentives that are out there that impact everything from community, economic development and revitalization to the whole tax structure, to uh, uh, tuition costs, endowments, and so there's just so much we need to be about the business of trying to teach our students and our alumni, for example. I get so angry. I, I do get angry. I wouldn't say disappointed. I get angry. I must, I'm going to admit it. I get angry when I see Black uh, alums of historically Black colleges getting all caught up in what happened with the dollars this year and forget about what happened 99 years. Now, mm -hmm. not, not, so the, the inappropriate expenditure of money is never okay. So that's not what I'm saying. But the whole point that I'm trying to make is when I was a student movement leader back in the 60s, I thought that the power was in the administration building at Arkansas m and College, but it was in Little Rock. Mm -hmm. Okay, it was in Little Rock, it was in Fayetteville. Mm -hmm. It was there then and it's still there now, okay? And mm -hmm. so we just need to educate our people uh, do a better job of that and talking about some of these issues and helping people to become two things. They have to become educated voters. They must be educated in how to hold people accountable that we vote for. And we have to educate people on how to become entrepreneurs. Mm. Right. We've gone on this path of educating Black folk to work for other people as opposed to educating Black people to be entrepreneurs, okay, who will do more employment and so on and so forth. But again, I'm, I, I digress. Go ahead. Well, we, we appreciate that um, shedding the, the light. And like you said, sometimes we can obsess about some things that uh, while, while important, there's something that's more glaring right in front of us that we need to address. And to that end, Dr. Cole, if you can elaborate a little bit on the inspiration that went into uh, you know, your book, The Campus Co-Line, College Presidents and the Struggle for Black Freedom. Yeah, um, and I, I, I love sharing this, and I, I think my friend Charlie would appreciate this because uh, knowing where he grew up in Arkansas, um, I grew up in a town called Bology in Alabama, uh, which is in the Alabama Black Belt, actually, uh, West Central Alabama, Greene County to be exact. And uh, um, oftentimes when people ask me about the inspiration behind the book, I start in Bology, Alabama, because uh, growing up in the uh, Greene County public school system, I always uh, noticed this. I wasn't worried or thinking deeply about it as a teenager, but I always noticed that uh, the public schools were 100% black, um, but uh, somewhere around the corner, not far from my public high school was a private predominantly white academy. And um, the remnants of decisions made by educational leaders, um, you know, following Brown versus Board of Education still very much shaped my educational experience when I was coming along. And so in the back of my mind, as I continue to think about uh, my own educational experiences, leaving Greene County, Alabama, and then going to Tennessee State University, I was actually on that campus when the Geyer versus Tennessee uh, desegregation case was formally closed, right? So I was a student there when that happened. And so you think about my, my, my hometown experience, and you think about my undergraduate experience, by the time I came to formally study the history of higher education, I had all of these life experiences that made me think deeply about the role that past educational leaders have made that still shaped education today in the present. And if I and if my small <clears throat> school system 
had a local superintendent and school principals that can make those kind of decisions that impacted my educational experience. Imagine the type of impact that college and university leaders could have had at the state and national level, if not the international level, right? And so that ultimately went into uh, the inspiration behind the book, because oftentimes I like to say, uh, when we read about the civil rights era, we rightfully so study activists, right? We rightfully understand the Diane Nashes. We rightfully understand the Stokely Carmichaels and the John Lewis. We we, they play incredible roles, but historians who have long studied these student activists, I always like to say the president or chancellor makes a cameo appearance in those histories, right? <laughs> There's always a president or a chancellor showing up in the story, even though the story is not about them, they always show up. So um, as a student uh, being groomed and being, you know, reading those texts, I started having different questions about, well, what else is happening behind the scenes? And I learned very quickly that our institutions of higher education, they weren't just reactive institutions. These leaders weren't just always reacting to these situations. Oftentimes, they were very proactive, albeit quietly behind the scenes in shaping racial policies and practices, sometimes for the better to advance the movement, but oftentimes, unfortunately, for the worse. And so you get the full range of better understanding uh, American society when you better understand our institutions of higher education. And ultimately, that's what I hope people gather when they read the book. You know, uh, Dr. Nelms, um, we've talked in different um, interview sessions about a book that you wrote uh, chronicling your rise through just public education up to higher education uh, from Eddie's observations. How, how well do they mirror your observations? Well, uh, very much so. And I want, to, I want to say this, I think it's really important for scholars like Eddie to be uh, studying, researching, and writing about this topic. Why is that? Because one's lived experience has a way of, and I know we want to say we're completely objective, and I think you can be objective and still be impacted by your lived experience, okay? And so, it helps you to interpret things a bit more fully and a bit in a more nuanced kind of way that I think some people tend to miss, okay? Mm -hmm. So if you listen to Eddie Cole, if you listen to Eddie Glaude, if you listen to some of these black scholars, whether they're at UCLA or whether they're at North Carolina Central or Tennessee State, if they have that lived experience, their interpretation, their they, they tend to be able to get underneath a lot of the things that a lot of people just sort of pass by or skate over. So I just want to say it's really important for scholar, Black scholars to be writing and researching on the topics that we're talking about, okay? But in terms of my lived experience, y'all, I'll just say it this way. Were it not for these Black principals and teachers in that little uh, Rosenwald school in Arkansas, there'd be no Charlie now. Were it not for those people at Arkansas Agricultural, Mechanical, and Normal College founded for the education of Negroes, there would be no Charlie Downs. There would not be one. And if it were not for Black colleges, there would not be a Black middle class in America. And I want you to go out, I want to encourage the audience to go out and read the most recent report from the Frederick D. Patterson Institute talking about the social mobility of Blacks and how that's related to 
the influence of historically black colleges and universities, the social mobility of historically black colleges in this country, the impact of social mobility mm -hmm. for black people. Well, Clarence, I don't think I can say anything else. There's nothing else to say except to say, except for these black folks in these little rural one and two room schools in Arkansas and at Arkansas m and College. Yeah, Indiana helped me, but by the time I got to Indiana, those other people had already convinced me. Okay. I'll put it. I'll I'll put okay. it. <laughs> and uh, William and I have that same reflection as we think back in Gary, Indiana, the school system that was up there, uh, time that we went through that education system in Gary before some of the challenges that are now confronting our former school system. I felt it was one of the best school systems in the world. A lot of those teachers have had those lived experiences and they uh, imparted that in the students that they that they compassionately taught. Um, I, I wanted to begin to land this, uh, this wonderful conversational journey we're on by asking this final question to Dr. Cole. Uh, with your remarks to the city of Bloomington coming up very shortly, uh, can you give us sort of uh, maybe a 30,000 foot view uh, synopsis uh, or, or some or a preview of what you're going to talk about? Don't, don't give away all the, <laughs> all the golden bits, but uh, give us something that uh, we can tease the audience with. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, one thing that's clear is that uh, there's so many pressing racial issues facing us today. And we can just look at our cities and college campuses right now. We see Black student activists protesting right now across the nation. We see people protesting uh, health, public health disparities, especially right now during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. We also see people poli uh, questioning policing and trying to reimagine how policing works and its disproportionate impact on Black communities, especially. But those issues that we're making sense of today are historical in nature. These are very, very old issues, right? You don't have to look back in the last two, three years to see black students protesting. You don't have to look back in the last couple of years to see people questioning public health disparities. And you don't have to look back in the last couple of years to see people questioning public safety in terms of relationship to police and communities of color. These issues are historic and one of the most influential institutions in shaping how we make sense of these issues historically have been our colleges and universities. And one of the most frequently visited places that Dr. Martin Luther King stopped in his many, many speaking stops was on college campuses across the United States. And so for us to really rethink the, the long history of these issues, we've gotta be able to sort of stop and step back and look at our so-called liberal institutions and look at the role that they've played in advancing and oftentimes stifling uh, progress toward fair housing and affirmative action and equitable policing and so many other aspects of life. And so I look forward to just giving everybody here in Bloomington a lot to think about and understanding that these issues aren't just sort of from a 30,000 foot view. These are localized issues applicable to us right here in Bloomington applicable to us across the Midwest. And this isn't just a Southern issue limited to the Jim Crow era. This is an issue that Martin Luther King and many other activists, including uh, what I hear um, his granddaughter saying right now these days, right? Many other activists understanding that um, black women yeah. and so many others have pushed for change 
um, in so many aspects of our life. And so we're going to get into that and understand that it's not just about reflecting on Dr. King, but it's about taking action now and understanding the challenges to that action so that we can make a better Bloomington, a better Indiana, and a better United States if we understand our history. But we can only do so if we understand our complex and complicated history. So I look forward to seeing everybody tonight, either live stream or in person. Thank you, Dr. Cole. Dr. Downs, 30 seconds for a final word. Final word is this. I'm reminded of a quote from Malcolm X who said, of all of our studies, of all of our studies, history is best suited to reward our efforts. History. Thank you, sir. And with that, we want to thank our guest, Dr. Eddie Cole, Associate Professor of Higher Education and Organizational Change at UCLA, uh, who again is tonight's keynote speaker at this evening's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration, which will start in just a few short minutes. And Dr. Charlie Nelms, retired chancellor, North Central, North, North Carolina Central University and IU Vice President for Institutional Development and Student Affairs Emeritus for both joining us this evening. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have any ideas for this program, we want to hear what they are. Please send your emails to our volunteer staff. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. Our email address is bringiton at wfhb.org. And also, if you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send that directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about tonight's guest, contact us at bring it on at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is that gentleman you were just listening to, assistant producer is yours truly, our consultant and WFHB News Department director is Cade Young. Our program engineer is Chantal LaFontant. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. And I'm Clarence Boone. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.